0: Hello. If we've never met before, my name is Anna. I'm part of the team at KXE. And before I get going, can we just start with, by saying how good Lois's hair is looking at the moment? I mean, I've been, I've been, just come up again. It's so good. It's too much for me. Anywho, yes, come on. I can hear you all cheering at home. So we are starting a new series um, called Rebuilders. Here's a lovely graphic of rebuilding hello there it is lovely so we're going to be following the series of um uh, we're going to be following the story of nehemiah it's going to be a four kind of a five to six week series we're giving ourselves a bit of wiggle room who knows what happens these days um and we're really it's really a a response to some of the prophetic voices in and around our community you know when you keep hearing the same name we kept on hearing the name nehemiah and we're like I think God wants to speak through this. Again, this Saturday, this Thursday, sorry, at Seek First, someone came out to Emma and said, I've got a word, I feel like God is talking about Nehemiah at the moment. So we are being obedient and we're looking, we're digging into the story of Nehemiah. And um, actually Sarah Piermain, who was one of our apprentices last year, she spent her apprenticeship year reading the book of Nehemiah. And again, she, she has been incredible at helping us form and craft this series because she was essentially listening to God and what is he wanting to say to his church even before the crisis hit. So we believe that God wants to speak to us through this book. This book is essentially a story of a rebuilding a nation. And that is what we need at the moment, isn't it? COVID has exposed. and um, and created some extreme inequalities and brokenness in our society. And we exposed a brokenness even in the church. And while the chambers will continue to ripple out throughout the year, we wanna begin to think about what does it look like for us as a community to begin to rebuild as hopeful rebuilders. But we're gonna start with Nehemiah 1 with a very cheery title, Weeping Over the Ruins. Now um, I'm going to look at two things: um, pouring out, um, pouring out your grief, and also prayer. So. Um, but before I do that, I'm going to set up a bit of context for the whole series. Because um, we're going to have a bit of a little history lesson, if you will. And now, a, a kind of a, a warning that I wasn't very good at history. I wasn't really engaged in history. It was all dates when I was at school and, you know, historical sources. And I didn't really engage with it that much. But these days, give me a World War II documentary and a glass of wine and I'm a very happy girl. And, um, but anyway, I'm going to blame my poor history teachers on this very sketchy timeline you are about to see, because I'm just gonna outline some of the biblical story and where Nehemiah fits into this. So we start with creation, where God created and made everything good, but created order begins to unravel as broken humanity fails to serve God by caring for creation as he would. So God kickstarts his redemption plan and he chooses one man. He says to Abraham, I'm gonna choose you. I'm gonna bless you and your family and through you, I'm gonna make you a vehicle of blessing to the whole of creation. And the narrative tracks the story of this family as they move from a family to a nation. And Moses, and we then kind of track on as they've grown and they've become this nation. And Moses, a descendant of Abraham, off of Prince of Egypt, you may have heard the song, there can be miracles when you believe. One of the greats, thank you. And he leads them through this defining identity, identity defying moment as a nation as they are freed from slavery. And then they go into the desert and God gives them the Torah, the law. And he says to this free people, this is how you're going to continue to live free. This is how you are going to be a vehicle of blessing to the whole of creation. And it's there in the desert that he gives it. um, In Deuteronomy, it says that God says to them, if you follow me, if you are people who are called by my name, you follow me, I will be with you. But... If you turn away from me, if you go and worship other gods, if you start um, like not looking after creation as I would want it to looked after, if you don't look after each other as I want you to look after each other, as you, if you don't become a blessing to the nations, then I will scatter you. But there's this promise that even if you are unfaithful, I will remain faithful. And if you turn back to me when you are scattered, if you call back to me, I will bring you home again. So after hearing that law read out, then Joshua, Moses' power, takes them into the land and they begin to settle. They build homes, they build cities, they build towns, and the crucial city is Jerusalem. But things begin to unravel as Israel say, we don't want God as our king. We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a human king. And they say, God, we reject you. We want a human king. We want to be like them. But it unravels even more because it gets incredibly messy because these kings are not good news. What ends up happening is the ten northern tribes, the tribes of Israel, separate from the two southern tribes, the tribes of Judah, and the nation splits and divides. And then they start putting their their own flesh and blood into slavery. It gets incredibly dark and they turn from worshipping God. And after repeated warnings, God says to the 10 tribes in the northern um, state, the 10 tribes of Israel, if you don't don't listen to me, then I'm gonna send you in captivity. And the Assyrians come and these 10 tribes cease to exist. And they are just disband and dispersed. And they're they're left with like this tiny remnant and then they start marrying outside of the Jewish um, nation and it starts causing problems. So if you want to go back to that timeline again you can see that happening and um, Judah outlasts a little bit longer. Judah which holds the city of Jerusalem lasts a little bit longer but eventually they experience the same fate and Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians and their people are taken into Babylon and it's here that we pick up the story of Nehemiah in Babylon. So we are going to read it. Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah son of somebody beginning with H, in the month of something beginning with K. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which is Babylon, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant remnant that had survived exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. And this is when Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. At This point of the story, the nation are in total disillusionment. How can they begin to understand what has happened to them? Doubts start to creep in, has God sent us into Israel, um, into exile, or have the Babylonian gods been been stronger than our God? Are we still the chosen people or has God rejected us? What about the promises he gave to Abraham? What's gone wrong? Will God deliver us? And is he willing to deliver us? Now, I'm going to pause the history lesson here, here and remind us of something that Pete spoke out about a few weeks ago. The three phases of, um, that a community goes through when they hit crisis. You can see it up, come up, but you've got the historic phase, the disillusionment and the hopeful rebuilding. The first phase, the heroic phase, where there's this energy surge and like this kind of like, we can do it, there's lots of good intention, but there's also a lot of ego. I remember those days, oh my goodness, weren't they sweet days when I had energy, when um, my savior complex was on fire, I thought I could fix things. But the heroic phase cannot be sustained because resources get depleted and even the most resilient people cannot live in this phase. And we have been through it in the last six months, haven't we? Parents have been, um, have been pushed to the edge with schools shut. They've been forced to be playmates, teachers and parents 24-7. Weddings have been cancelled and that special moment when you imagine all your friends and family around you to celebrate, that vision has been decimated. People have lost loved ones and then they've not been able to grieve and hug their families and friends. People have lost jobs and been plunged into financial insecurity. For many, the home hasn't been a safe place and they've been trapped in the home with their abuser. Frontline workers have been um, working overtime all the time, putting themselves at risk for our sake. Deep wounds of racism have been exposed and compounded existing trauma families have been separated and those whose families are abroad don't even know when they're going to get to see their families again people have experienced extreme social isolation stress and anxiety and it's put pressure on mental health it's some, for some people it's not just been one of these things it's been multiple layers and for some people you've had been kind of supporting other people who've been going through extreme trauma and all the time our normal life has been disrupted on our routines and all the activities that usually divert us, they've been taken away and nothing has felt secure, particularly internally, nothing has felt secure. So doubts have surfaced as to whether we even belong. People we see we're arguing with and all the time we now na- have this nagging question of, am I being a good parent? Am I doing a good job? Do I have any friends left? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not sure I've got what it takes to keep going. I think it's safe to say most of us have probably hit the disillusionment phase. And if you're struggling at the moment, please don't think that you are alone in this. And don't get caught in the trap of thinking you're just weak. We have been through it. Like Jerusalem, there is a lot to grieve over at the moment. And if you aren't in this place, well, my guess is you've already been there or it's coming, or you're too scared to engage with the emotions because you're scared to engage with the negative emotions. And yet I want to say to you, yet while this is, can be a terrifying thing to engage with because sometimes it can overwhelm us, there's actually something really healthy about this disillusionment phase. The pain and the grief can actually be a healthy moment because it's a time where God excavates the ego from us. And it's only when he does that that the hopeful rebuilding can begin again. There's something about hitting the reality of our situation of I don't have what it takes, I can't do this anymore, I can't muster up the energy, I don't have the vision, I'm not fun to be around, I feel so limited, I can't fix anything. And hearing God say, yes, Anna, I know, I know, moving to the deep realisation that I cannot do this. And I love so many things about the mindfulness movement um, that has become increasingly popular, but one of the areas where it's totally inadequate is it demands that you find the inner resources yourself. And if the last six months have shown us anything, it's that we are not in control, we do not have the power, we cannot fix things, and we are not the savior. And Nehemiah 1 is this stunning moment where this incredibly competent, An influential man finds himself on his knees, grieving, weeping over the ruins of Jerusalem. He's in touch with his own pain, his families and his nations. He's not running away from it. And he's knowing that he doesn't have the power to influence and change things. His competence is not enough. And the phrase, the phase after the disillusionment is the hopeful rebuilding. But if we're going to rebuild well, you've got to hit the realisation that you cannot do it. And for me, the last um, month or so, I have been full on in the disillusionment phase. Um, I think I'm saying this hopefully. Um, I think I might be coming out of it. Um, but to say I haven't been a barrel of laughs would be an absolute understatement. And it's been terrifying because usually I'm quite a resilient person. I'm used to bouncing back quite quickly. And I was genuinely scared when I wasn't bouncing. I wasn't bouncing back. I was exhausted before holiday. Exhaustion I just haven't known before. And um, I felt manic and I made jokes about it because that's what I do to cover up things, which are actually, you know, really deep. Um, but I felt actually totally out of control. I felt control, out of control of my emotions, of my mouth. I had no idea what was gonna go or come out of my mouth next. And also, like, my mind wasn't thinking in a linear way. It was just firing off all over the place. And then it, when it came back from holiday, actually got worse, I had two weeks of blissful rest and I thought, okay, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna come back firing again, that's what I do. And I came back to London, I just felt sick because the thought of facing the chaos again, I thought, I don't have what it takes. I can't do this, I don't want to do it. And instead I found myself Doing something that I very rarely do, going into my room and just crying. Just sitting in my room and just crying, saying, God, I can't do this. I'm scared. I actually want to give up. And um, there's that, that song that Tom has written. And it's been, um, I've been listening to it a lot. Um, where It has that line, we do not grieve as those without hope. And it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring, will bring him with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. We do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That is our hope, that Jesus is alive. We don't have to fear the grief and the disillusionment stage. And I encourage you, those who struggle to engage with negative emotions, like there is hope in the midst of this. And if you are undeniably in the disillusionment phase, then I want to point you to 2 Corinthians 1. This week has been um, an absolute gift to me, this verse. If you've been following our Bible reading plan, you would have read it. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9. This is Paul talking about his struggles in Asia. He says, indeed, we felt like we would received the sentence of death, very intense. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I read this passage at the beginning of the week and it was like a flicker of light came on that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. And that has been my prayer this week. God, would you resurrect me? And as I've been praying it, I've been praying it for you, for the church. God, would you resurrect us? Where we feel dead, where we feel like we have no hope, would you resurrect us? And that's what I believe the Spirit wants to do. And it was happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And we can say with with confidence that the disillusionment phase leads to hope because the birthplace of the hope of the Christian story is found in a tomb. The disillusionment of um, the Saturday between Good Friday when Jesus is killed and Easter Sunday when he is resurrected is a day of disillusionment. Disillusionment is part of our story, but the disillusionment leads to hope. And it feels like for many of us, we are like that. We are in a tomb surrounded by darkness and death. But in the midst of it, I truly believe that God is going to resurrect us because that's what God does. He is the God who raises the dead. That's the foundation of our rebuilding. If we are going to be hopeful rebuilders, that is our foundation, that we have a God who raises the dead. Which leads us back to Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah's story is a story of, wider, of the wider rebuilding of Jerusalem, and it features three lads, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And the narrative the rebuilding of Israel was originally told as one story. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah have been condensed into one, but it's actually one long narrative. And um, you'll see uh, that Zerubbabel, he had a leadership role in rebuilding Jerusalem. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, Ezra focuses on the community and re-establishing the law that was given to Moses and Nehemiah comes in with the, the walls. Now each segment of their work undergoes opposition and while the rebuilding has moments of triumph there are also weird disappointments. When the temple gets rebuilt... As well as joy there is also grief because it's not as good as the old one and also the remnant of the northern kingdom come down and they want to get involved as well which is odd because the prophecy and they get sent away and they get told by Zerubbabel you're not part of this rebuilding which is odd because all the prophecies about Israel when they would come back is that all the tribes all the 12 tribes would be back together again and then Ezra After reading the law, he then turns away the wives and the children of the people of Judah who aren't Jews. And he says, you have no part in this rebuilding, which again is weird because Israel was meant to be a blessing to the nations, not turning them away. And then you have Nehemiah's story. It ends with the temple, the community and the walls all being rebuilt. But when Nehemiah walks around the city, there's no one keeping the Sabbath. There is no one following the right way of worship. And it's this anticlimax. And Nehemiah just says, do you know what? Well, I tried, didn't I? And I know that all sounds depressing again, but there is good news coming. What this story shows is, yes, Israel were back in the land again, and they were doing the good work of rebuilding process, but there was a problem. Their spiritual state was unchanged. They needed more than new walls and a building. They needed what Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about, a new heart Jeremiah says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my my people. Ezekiel says, I will put a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The story of Nehemiah is brilliant and we are going to learn a lot from it. But what first comes is the realisation that activity alone is not enough. The hopeful rebuilding of bricks and a community coming back together isn't the lesson here. Us going back to normal and being just a better version of ourselves isn't what we're looking for. We're not going to kind of look at Nehemiah and just look for the top 10 tips of how to rebuild your life. Activity isn't enough. There's something much deeper that needs to happen. And the book of Nehemiah, it finishes as part of this story of Israel of them longing for a Messiah, a rebuilder who will restore the ancient ruins, fulfill the promise that God would, that this nation, this incredible nation would be a blessing to the the whole of creation. They're longing for that Messiah and and those longings find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus who rebuilds from the inside out, the promises fulfilled from Israel, that one will come who will bless the nations and his name is Jesus. And everything in me, when I looked at this passage, wanted to tell you how to pray and how to kind of dissect Nehemiah's prayer. And I encourage you to read it because it is a beautiful prayer worth reading. Because I felt like God once desperately wants to take us back to the simplicity of being a people of prayer, of people with a hopeful message. And I've kind of got obsessed with prayer over the last few months. I've been listening to um, audio books from Pete Gregg, podcasts from John Tyson. I've even bought liturgical prayer books. But in my eagerness to respond to what God was saying about prayer, I think I missed the point. The point isn't prayer. The point isn't social justice. The point isn't the mission. The point is Jesus It's not about getting good at prayer. It's not about racking up time in prayer. It's not even about the results of prayer. In the words of Pete Gregg, the vision is Jesus, obsessively, dangerously, undeniably Jesus. Jesus is the point of prayer. Jesus is the great restorer. Jesus is the great redeemer. He's the one who is able. He's the one who's able to take the broken bits of this world and make them new. And at the beginning of this series, as we talk about rebuilders, the starting point, the foundation that we're going to build on is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's his work. It's his mission. And it's that which we get involved in. He is the foundation. The rebuilding begins with actually just saying, God, would you rebuild me? And I want it to be built upon you, all upon you, with eyes fixed on Him. If you want to start rebuilding, my my best advice to you is get obsessed with Jesus. Get obsessed with the person of Jesus, His mission. Get obsessed with who he is and what he wants to do in your lives and the lives of people around. Feed the obsession. That's why we read scripture, not just to get knowledge in our heads, but to get to know this man, Jesus, who is so attractive, who is so beautiful, who's so powerful, who's so majestic, who's so full of mercy, who's so full of grace. It is all about Jesus. And as I've been preparing for this, I've been repenting of where all the times where I haven't made it about Jesus. That actually in the heroic phase, what it showed up is that actually deep down, I think that I can rebuild. Deep down, I think I've got a great strategy. Deep down, I think I've got it within me. And the last six months have shown me that I don't have it in me. But thank God I know one that does. Thank God I know one who is a great rebuilder, who will rebuild the ancient ruins, who will restore, who will make all things new.